Welcome to episode 55 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversation with Sycarmor Trust partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to sycarmor.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. On today's episode, I'm having a conversation with Roxana Delgado, Ph.D., Dr. Delgado is a health scientist and assistant professor at the University of Texas, the Elizabeth Dole Foundation Research Advisor for the Campaign for Inclusive Care, and one of the investigators at the VA Elizabeth Dole Center of Excellence for Veterans and Caregiver Research. Dr. Delgado developed the Military and Veteran Caregiver Portfolio, a research platform that addresses the short- and long-term health-related outcomes of caregivers of wounded, ill, and injured service members and veterans. Dr. Delgado's professional experience was inspired by her firsthand personal experience as the wife of a combat-wounded veteran and Purple Heart recipient. You can find out more about Dr. Delgado by checking out her bio in our show notes. Let's get into my conversation with her and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. You've spent much of the recent part of your life supporting wounded, ill, and injured veterans, as well as caregivers that support them. I can't imagine anyone doing work in the caregiver space that's not familiar with your work and your story, but many might not be familiar in the wider veteran support space about how you came to do what you're doing. Like many of us, you came to this work through the lived experience as a military spouse and as a caregiver, and then into what you're doing today. Thank you so much, Dwayne. You're right. I, I was a military spouse for almost a decade, and my husband was combat wounded in 2009. That just changed my entire life. I was facing this crossroad of now he's been medically evacuated. He sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury, among other injuries, and he was sent home for treatment and rehab. He spent almost three years in a rehab center. I was a full-time caregiver to him. And at that time, I was doing my PhD. So I was already a researcher working with the Department of Defense as a contractor when all this happened. And I thought Victor is deploying for the third time. He's going to be gone for almost 15 months. So this is my chance to do my PhD. As I'm starting the PhD, he was medevac during that first semester, that first week of the first year of my graduate school. And at that time, I remember thinking to myself, I could easily stop and hold my life and just take care of him. But at that moment, I also thought about how much I can do with a PhD if I'm able to press on, push through, go forward and do everything. It was not easy. Nothing in life comes easy, but I was able to finish my PhD while Victor was being cared for by the Army. I was a full-time caregiver at that time for him, and in 2013 is when I completed my degree and continued working in research, but this time I decided to change the entire scope of my work to be working mostly with wounded, ill, and injured, and also their family caregivers. 
I'll tell you that, you know, caregiving is something that comes abruptly. Rachel was wounded June 29th, 09, and I received the call around 5 in the morning. And it's usually those first words, ma'am, what are you doing? Are you driving? They ask questions. And when they knew I was in a safe place, I was in a hotel, actually. I was working at that time in uh, Fort Carson. We were ready to start collecting data for a study. And I was getting ready, and I was woken up by that call. And basically, it's, we regret to inform you that your husband was wounded in action. And then after that, you don't hear anything else. Mm-hmm. So it's a... Uh, it's as if time pauses, and I have heard this with other caregivers that we share about that moment. And I remember the air getting really thick, and as if nothing moves around me. It just takes me as a shock. But in my case, I remember thinking and and reflecting, and really being mostly in shock. But thinking, how can I use this for purpose, life purpose? And and I think that what you said about it happening in an instant, and it's an unexpected instant as a military spouse, as a service member myself, we knew that it's a possibility, but it goes from a possibility to a definite thing immediately. As you were talking, I was thinking I was deployed in June of 2009. My wife was, she was probably 10 miles away from you because we're stationed at Fort Carson. So at that moment, like it literally could have been me. That if I was catastrophically wounded, ill, and injured, and thankfully I was not, I can't think of a, I don't want to say necessarily random, but 10 miles apart, one spouse got the story of their deployed service member and it changed their life forever and another didn't. And I tell you, I still remember the place that I was sitting down when at nine in the morning, because I excused myself that day from being actively with groups and everything and being just glued to my phone. And at nine in the morning, I still remember the exact corner I was sitting waiting for any additional information there in Fort Carson. And I think that's why it's so important the work that we do. For me, it's personal. For me, being there done that. I know what it is to get that call. I know how it feels those first hours and then that first week and the first couple months. Victor was not medically evacuated home until almost two months later. He spent some time in Landstuhl in Germany. They ran so many diagnostics and they left him there for almost a month to see they have the best technology at that time. And now we have great technology here in the States in Walter Reed and the NICO National Intrepid Center of Excellence. But back then they left him there for a whole month seeing what the prognosis was and if he was able to go back to Iraq. But unfortunately he was, I don't want to call it disabled at that time, they don't call it disabled, but he was not really ready. He needed he was having seizures, he was having mini strokes, he was not being coherent, he had the MRI uh, showed three bleedings in his brain. So they said there's no way he can go back to Iraq. So he was medically evacuated for rehabilitation. And like I said, he spent a good three years in a neural rehab center. And, and the other, I think, really compelling part about your story is, as you said, Being a caregiver, my wife will tell you this, just being a spouse, military spouse is a full-time job. Being a caregiver for someone who is catastrophically wounded, ill, or injured is a full-time job. But you decided at that moment that this was a point in which it's not just my experience, but I need to continue my educational journey and put myself in a place where there are other spouses getting these calls that that I know that I'm not the only one and we're going to need to really study this. Absolutely. And at that time, not many people were talking about caregiving in the military. I remember Victor being in the water transition battalion, and there was this 
town hall meetings. And I was one of probably the only two spouses that would showed up. And back in the day at that time, it was just at the end of 2009, beginning of 2010, I remember talking to the commander and I said, where are these spouses? Where are they? Where are they home? Or he said, many of them have left. Mm-hmm. And I remember back then with, I was so naive about caregiving. I didn't know anything about it. The most I could relate to caregiving was my grandfather that cared for my grandmother for many years, for three decades. But it's not something that we tend to talk about or anything. And it was not military related. And you're not supposed to be a caregiver. Basically, when you're young, you, you're expecting mm-hmm. that. I remember talking to the commander and I said, is it allowed or is it possible that we start calling them and inviting them maybe for coffee time or a support group? So that was my first encounter with caregivers. It started as a small support group. And after a year, we have 40 caregivers coming in every week. And then it was just beautiful to work with them. That was the moment that I started to see and connect with other caregivers because our journeys are so different. But at the same time, we have this connection that we understand what struggles are, what challenges are. We know that we have to be resilient. There's no question about it. The question is, how can we become resilient? And there's no better way to be resilient than creating community, finding the resources, making sure that things are in place for us to be stronger, because you have to be strong to be able to overcome the challenges that come with this caregiving. And that's how basically everything, my love, understanding better the community, being there for the community, finding resources, and using anything at my reach to be able to bring it together and make caregivers' lives better. That was the whole idea behind I need to push through, I need to finish this degree, I need to change my research topics and really find ways to uncover those hidden, basically, themes and and challenges and things that are happening in the caregiver community. And I think that even that lived experience in the beginning, as you said, you were working towards your degree at that time. But as you said, just like every wound is different, one spouse may have a veteran who's wounded, burned over 80% of their body, or another may have an amputee where someone else may be like Victor having multiple traumatic brain injuries, maybe not necessarily visible, but still very critical. And those take three different actual caregivings, but you're all still doing it on your own and feeling like the burden. And so there are things that are common among them. And this is something that's really come out from your research. You recently published the results of your research on the intersection of the mental health of caregivers themselves and caregiving. A lot of the conversation we've been having over the past 10 or 15 years, once we started talking, was about the caregiver as it relates to the veteran. But you're really the first one that that I've seen to talk about. What about the caregiver themselves? Because if we don't support them, then the caregiver, the veteran, maybe other family members can really be in a vulnerable place. And the reality is there's not a straight shot or any guidance that you're giving when you become a caregiver. But many caregivers, they focus on their veterans. And our research is about the caregiver. We're looking at the long-term outcome of caregiving. We're following caregivers. We're asking them the critical questions that sometimes are a, a bit painful to talk about. And I remember in 2015, when I became an Elizabeth Dole Foundation Fellow, Senator Dole went to a VA symposium. And she stood up, and, and we were all watching live, and she said, Suicide among caregivers is the is the white elephant in the room, and nobody wants to talk about it. And because there's a at that time there were some programs, but most of the programs were all directed to the veterans, and the caregivers were invited by coincidence. But there were no real programs directed specifically for the caregivers. 
that would attend to the needs of the caregiver. And at that time, I remember I was already working on caregiver research. And I remember looking at my colleague who happens to be a gold star wife, my colleague, Dr. Peacock. We work very close together. We have been working together for over 10 years in research. And I remember we both looked at each other. Let's do it. Let's just find a way to quantify the suicidal ideation in caregivers. And that's exactly what we set for back in 2016. And that's the publication that you're referring to. And I'll tell you, for us, it was eye-opening. It was difficult. It's one of those things that, yes, I'm a researcher and I have the hat, but I just happen to be also a caregiver. And having both that dual hat is very beneficial because I get to be an insider and understand. I have to set aside some of my biases, of course, as a researcher. But when we were approaching that data, at certain points, we had to stop and really take a break because it was heart-wrenching looking at some of the experience of some caregivers. And that study, what uh, the final you know, results and the outcome of this study show the predictors of suicidal ideation in different pockets of caregivers. So we were able to slice basically three distinct groups based on the risk for suicidal ideation. And we found that those who are at high risk of either considering or attempting suicide were those caring for veterans with traumatic brain injury and mental health, with the highest being those caring for a veteran with suicidal thoughts. When you think about the veterans, many of them have suicidal thoughts. Many of these caregivers are caring for a veteran with mental health conditions. So it, it was very eye-opening. I think that's what, when we publish AARP and some other organizations reach out right away because is the first study looking at suicidality in military and veteran caregivers. And I think I, I had a, a first sergeant who always used to say, don't ask scary questions if you don't want scary answers. And this is where you had to ask scary questions because it's better to have the ugly truth than the beautiful lie. And the beautiful lie is the caregiver is this strong, resilient person that's caring for their veteran. Whereas the truth is we understand how suicidal ideation can grow among groups and things like that. And so I, I think that's really important. It's a brave step. It's a bold step to say, as Senator Dole did, this is the elephant in the room to just say, no, we're going to ask these specific questions, knowing that we're going to get these ugly answers and knowing that it's going to hurt us because it's happening but we need to bring the light to it. Absolutely. And I think, like you said, you know, it's, it's the ugly truth, but somebody has to ask the questions. We are not going to change how things are if we don't, if we're not brave enough to ask the questions. And I'll tell you, it took us a, quite a while to get that approval from the regulatory agencies and mm -hmm. the IRB, the Institutional Review Board, because it comes with the nature that you ask about suicidal ideation, what are you going to do next? And we, we had a mitigation plan in place. And part of it, you will be very happy to know, it was PsychArmor. We engaged some people from PsychArmor and some of the modules that you had at that time to help caregivers really understand the burdens that comes with caregiving. PsychArmor was a great resource at that time for this study as a mitigation strategy also for the questions that we were asking. And, and I think that's a, a critical step is for many people asking the question, 
then it's a, what do I do if I get that answer? And you'd mentioned Senator Dole. You'd mentioned that you were a Dole fellow. We were grateful to highlight the work of the Elizabeth Dole Foundation when we had Steve Schwab on the podcast back in episode 14. But I'd like to hear about the organization from your perspective, having been a Dole fellow and now a research advisor for the Dole Foundation. They've really taken on a role as the national leader in the conversation around military and veteran families. I honestly don't think we will be talking about caregiving the way the nation has been talking about caregiving and even internationally if it's not because of the Dole Foundation. The Elizabeth Dole Foundation started and and of course I don't know those first initials as an insider. It's basically what I have seen, what I have experienced, like you said, as a fellow and as a one of the caregivers that get the benefits from all the services they provide. But it started with the idea of creating that conversation, creating a national discussion and bringing awareness. And that's why they commissioned the RAND to do the largest study of military and veteran caregivers back then. And I think that that was basically what uncovered the rest of the services that they have. But I'll tell you, I don't know that the caregivers will have the voice that we have today, the power of the information that we have today, the number of programs and services. And I don't mean just from the Dole Foundation, but all the programs and services provided by so many organizations, engaging corporate America, engaging big corporations into this endeavor. I don't think it would have happened without the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. And I am deeply grateful. I started as a fellow. I enjoy very much those two years where we get trained about if you want to change something, they train you how is the best way to do it. They connect you with the people in your state. In my case, I'm in Texas. So they connected me with legislators that they knew that could do something to change policies, to improve systems, to bring awareness, all the A to Z of advocacy. But then beyond that, they were critical. They were instrumental in my career because when I I did my postdoctoral work here at UT Health in San Antonio in the School of Medicine, and as I was transitioning into a faculty position, I'm now a, an assistant professor, they were incredibly supportive. They sent a letter to the university, to my dean of the school, letting him know about my role, not only as a researcher, but also as a caregiver. And they supported me uh, throughout my career. When I was already established as a faculty member, that's when I was invited to work with them mostly on on the campaign for inclusive care as a research advisor. And we're running that program where basically we're evaluating the campaign for inclusive care and the implementation at a national level throughout the VA hospitals and facilities. So it's it has my role at the Dell Foundation has evolved from 2015 all the way to now. But I have seen it with different hats as a researcher, my career, but also as a caregiver. They pour their hearts into everything they do. They have been incredibly graceful and loving and supportive of the community. And I think that, like I said, I don't think we would be having this conversation at a national, international level the way that we have been doing it if it's not because of them and all the efforts that they have brought to life. 
one of the things that I've really valued about the Dole Foundation is, yes, it's having these national conversations, strategic level conversations on what is the future of caregiving 10, 15 years. How can we implement change in large systems like the VA, like through the Campaign for Inclusive Care? But they also impact individual lives at the personal level because they help caregivers know that you're not alone in this. When we talk about this lived experience, it started because Senator Elizabeth Dole was a caregiver for Senator Bob Dole, a veteran himself. And so she was like, I know I'm not the only one. You were in the Warrior Transition Battalion saying, I know I'm not the only one. Where are the other spouses? She had a larger platform, arguably, but it's the same thing when you started your event that grew into 40 spouses. It's to let caregivers know that they're not alone in this. Absolutely. They're not alone. There's nothing more beautiful than creating community. There's such a force and a powerful result when we all come together. But we couldn't, I I tell you, I just love Senator Dole. She has my heart. She has been incredible, especially to me with too many caregivers, but she's a very special leader. I remember at the beginning of my fellowship, I was a fellow very excited about being in that position and all that. And I sent her a letter and she picked up the phone and she called. So that's the person that she is. I tell you that every time she gets a letter, she calls the person. And we have so many of us have incredible stories about her. She has been doing this out of her heart. She didn't have to. She's a very successful national leader, well-recognized in the world. She was retired. She really didn't have to do this, but she chose to do it. She chose to give us a voice and she chose to train us to really follow her legacy. I feel that she is leaving a a tremendous legacy in our community. And I I just feel so inspired that I'm like, I cannot let her down. And anything that I can do to continue the work, to continue making caregivers feel loved and supported and empowered. I think that one thing that is happening very much in our community is isolation, is feeling that loneliness that, and I, a part of the publication talks about the loss of self. They are becoming so absorbed by the caregiving role that they're forgetting that they're an individual, that they it's okay to dream, it's okay to have your own goals, it's okay to have joy in the middle of everything. And hopefully caregivers can see that not only the Dole Foundation, but other organizations are coming together as coalitions to really bring the programs and the services that they need to be empowered and continue their life. And it's okay. I always tell caregivers, it's okay to dream. Even if you have to put your goals like on hold for, for a while, it's okay to come back and continue your life and ask your caregivers. But I, I wish, you know, and, and my hope is that caregivers feel not only the love and the support, but also the empowerment to grow and continue their life in a very successful way. Not only is it okay to dream, it's necessary to dream. It's necessary (laughs) to have that goal. Hey, Roxanne, I really appreciate the time that you've spent. I'm definitely going to make sure that the link to the publication is in the show notes. If people wanted to find out more about caregiver support, how would you recommend that they do that? I think the best is for them to go to feedingheroes.org. That's the, the website for the Dole Foundation. They're going to find the largest national directory of caregiver services across the nation. And I'm so grateful, Dwayne, that you're going to add the publication 
we purposely did open source publications so anybody can access that without having to pay to any journal. I'm always at your service and I'm very grateful for this time and your grace and kindness and your service. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. If you're a regular listener to the show, then you know that we've discussed the topic of caregiving and caregivers for wounded, ill, and injured veterans before. In my discussion with Dr. Delgado, I mentioned the episode with Steve Schwab, and we specifically talked about caregivers in episode 34 with Melissa Como and talked about the Campaign for Inclusive Care, which Dr. Delgado mentioned in our conversation with Leah Christensen in episode 38. Talking about the importance of military spouses and children is inevitable when we're talking about service members and veterans, and talking about caregivers is inevitable when we're talking about emerging from the longest period of sustained conflict in our nation's history. The one point that consistently comes up, however, is what Dr. Delgado said. Not that long ago, the common understanding of the term caregiver was support that was given to our older family members. She said that when she thought of the term caregiver, she thought of her grandfather, who was a caregiver for her grandmother for a number of years. Again, if you listened to the episode with Melissa Como, you heard me realize that I hadn't considered myself a caregiver for my Vietnam veteran father, even though we moved him in with us to keep him from experiencing a period of homelessness, helped him apply for and finally receive his VA disability 48 years after he was in Vietnam and took him to every significant VA appointment he had, both locally and at the main hospital an hour and a half away. And that's another example of how caregivers come in unexpected ways and in all shapes and sizes. Mine happened gradually over a number of years, and after my military career was over, Dr. Delgado's and many spouses became caregivers in an instant, unexpectedly, heralded by a phone call at 5 in the morning. She woke up that morning thinking about the research interview she was going to conduct that day. You may see being a caregiver coming if you have a loved one with chronic health conditions. You don't see it coming when your spouse is hale, hearty, and half a world away. 25-year-olds or even 19-year-olds don't think about the possibility that their entire lives will change in an instant. As I mentioned in the episode, you may think about it theoretically. Any service member with a family that deploys at least has a conversation about wills and things that might happen if they're wounded or killed, but it's theoretical. There's a part of you in the back of your mind that knows that it's possible, but not really likely. There's a saying, be kind, you never know what someone else is going through. This is especially true for caregivers, as their experience is so unique that many of us don't have a frame of reference for understanding. Even I don't have a frame of reference for Dr. Delgado's experience, as my father was mostly autonomous and eventually able to live independently again. I wasn't a caregiver for someone who required constant support because of their catastrophic injuries. If there's a point that I'd like to drive home, it's that we need to understand more and support more those who find themselves caring for veterans day in and day out. They are, they are also co-signers of that blank check that you often hear folks talk about. The other point that I'd like to make is that you should never underestimate the power of persistence. A favorite quote of mine, often attributed to Margaret Mead, is, Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. 
I often amend that quote to say that we should include thoughtful, committed, organized citizens. And that's certainly the case here. But I'm referring to both Dr. Delgado's individual persistence of continuing her educational efforts while being a caregiver and the persistence of the group of committed citizens that have made the Elizabeth Dole Foundation a leading voice in the support of caregiving spouses and children. The Dole Foundation is a great organization, and Senator Elizabeth Dole is an amazing leader. But national leaders take up causes and issues all the time, and they don't always develop into a worldwide advocacy group that has influence at both the operational and strategic levels. The impact of the Dole Foundation is felt behind the closed doors in an individual veteran's home, when that veteran's caregiver feels a momentary relief when they realize that they're not alone in the work that they're doing. And the impact of the foundation is felt in the halls of Congress and the offices of the White House. This is the power of the right leader bringing the right people together to make a significant impact. This is an example of an organization that knows its purpose and where it fits in with the wide range of other support required for service members, veterans, and their families. And while I'm singing the praises of the Dole Foundation, the point that I'm really trying to make is that persistence is required to have a lot of conversations with a lot of people about a single thing, whatever that thing is. Financial support for lower enlisted military families, the value of nature in increasing wellness and mental health, employment, or suicide prevention. You may feel like you're yelling into an empty room, but there are a lot of empty rooms where a lot of other people are yelling about the same thing. Find each other. Then find the organization that seems to be doing something. Get the attention of the national leader, or heck, become the national leader yourself. Be thoughtful, be committed, get organized, then go change the world. For this week's PsychArmor Resource of the Week, I'd like to share the recently released PsychArmor course, The VA Save Preventing Caregiver Suicide, specifically related to Dr. Delgado's research that indicates that military and veteran caregivers are at greater risk of their own suicidal ideation and behavior. PsychArmor is partnered with the Department of Veterans Affairs to bring you this course specifically for caregivers. After taking this course, you will develop an understanding of the increased risk for suicide we see in military and veteran caregivers. Identify the signs of an at-risk veteran caregiver and know the steps that you can take to help a veteran caregiver. You can check out the course by going through a link in the show notes. So thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in your podcast player of choice, as well as at psychomer.org forward slash podcast. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.